So I went to medical school at Loma Linda University. And when I went to Loma Linda University Medical School, they taught us lots of stuff. Um, a lot of the stuff is, was fairly esoteric. This is a pathway related to beriberi. I have never seen a case of beriberi, but I have seen cases of heart disease and congestive heart failure and high blood pressure out of control and diabetes and gout and those kinds of things. But um, this is interesting because if you look at the 10 leading causes of death, you look at heart disease and cancer and and um, diabetes and stroke and so forth, even kidney disease, the majority of these conditions are related to dietary choices and are fully preventable. So, um, and then if you look at risk factors for chronic diseases, what we see here is that um, we underestimate the power of our food choices. And so, it is not tobacco that's causing our problem or high blood pressure. It is our food choices, suboptimal food choices. And um, actually, when you look at chronic disease, probably 80% of the chronic diseases that we have are completely preventable. Um, the, there was just a publication recently about the global burden of health of chronic diseases worldwide and that global burden of disease a line from that said that what we are not eating is killing us and specifically what they the article was talking about is whole grains and what we're going to talk about whole grains nuts and fruit is killing us because we're not eating it the other thing that was important about that article it's published every year in the lancet it ranked countries based on mortality in other words, um, what countries do you live longest in? The United States of America was ranked number 43 behind Rwanda and Nigeria. They're doing better than the United States is. So that's a very interesting thing. So when you look at that, those, these chronic diseases, these things are fully preventable. Um, and so what we understand as Seventh-day Adventists, given the health message, is that the Lord has given us our bodies to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about lifestyle and these kinds of things today, many people are talking about nutrition and health and so forth, but Seventh-day Adventists appreciate the uniqueness really is for the, the, the use of the Holy Spirit. Too often as physicians, we are really good at giving medications to people. And the disease continues to go, but instead of turning off the faucet, we keep giving medications. What's interesting is some people want to be able to get their medication and eat their cake too. One of the most frustrating things as a physician that I have to encounter is a patient who says, I want to eat my cheesecake. I don't care if I have diabetes. I want to eat my cheesecake and, and just give me the pills and I'll be fine. Um, I want to eat my salt. Can't you give me pills for my high blood pressure? And so forth. So I believe that what we need to do is to stop mopping the floor and turn off the faucet. All right. So what we're going to cover today in, in kind of a rapid fashion is consensus views on nutrition, what Americans actually eat. We're going to do a deep dive into cardiovascular disease 
insulin resistance, cancer, and obesity. And I can tell you right now that we're not going to be able to cover all of this. But what we're going to look at is what science says about this. The fact of the matter is Ellen White made statements years ago when she was given this message. And now science has come and backed her up. It's very interesting. And I wish that as Seventh-day Adventists, we were more proactive. Now, this is a city skyline. As we talk about these nutritional studies, there's lots of confusion in the literature. And so it's like a skyline. Does anybody in this room, besides my husband, know what city this is? Okay, this is Bangkok, Thailand. And the reason I have Bangkok up here is because last year in December, my husband and I celebrated our 29th wedding anniversary, went to Thailand, and I love Bangkok. But the point really I want to illustrate is this. If you look at nutritional studies, it's like looking at a skyline. Some of the buildings are tall. Some of them are shorter. And what you want to look at is how these studies contribute to the overall landscape. I'll give you a good example. Coconut oil. How many people use coconut oil? How many people think coconut oil is the best thing since sliced bread? The data is mixed. And so it used to be that coconut oil, you don't eat that. It's, it's you know, saturated and whatnot. Um, and then all of a sudden, coconut oil was the bomb. And now we're beginning to realize maybe coconut oil is not the bomb. There's something else besides that. So as we look at nutritional studies, we are looking at the overall weight of the evidence. Where does the evidence go? We're going to frame the discussion in a way that I believe is accessible to almost all of us. We're going to look at, the, at uh, these food groups in colors. There are the red box foods, the yellow box foods, and the green box foods. So the, yellow, the, green, the, the, the red box foods, there is broad consensus in the literature that these foods promote harm. And the green box foods, there is broad consensus in the literature that these foods are very health-promoting foods. And both of these two boxes, you will find practically no studies. In fact, I will say no studies that refute the fact that these foods are either health-promoting health or they cause harm. Where the debate sometimes often is, it is what, with what I'm calling yellow box foods, poultry, eggs, dairy. And the reason these are yellow box is because when you compare them to the red box foods, they seem really great. But are they really the best thing that we should be eating? So that's how we're going to frame the discussion um, this morning. Now, what we're going to talk about is, first of all, um, this the red box foods, processed meat. Processed meat is any meat that has been cured, smoked, fermented, or preservatives that added. Chicken nuggets, cold cuts, hot dogs, bacon, salami, all these processed foods are highly dangerous foods. Red meat, and that one is fairly... Um, Self-explanatory. Red meat. You know, do you see these signs that pork is the other white meat? Do you know that's not true? The definition of red meat is any mammalian muscle meat is red meat. So beef, pork, lamb, goat, veal, venison, mutton, 
It's all the same. There is no difference. These foods are difficult. The added sugar, that's an easy one. We know what that is. Sugar, sweetened beverages, etc. What we want to focus a little bit on is refined grains. Carbohydrates. There are a few seats, I believe, scattered around if people want to get some seats. But refined grains. One of my pet peeves as a physician is related to carbohydrate. How many of you have heard that carbohydrates are bad for you? Okay. Everyone says carbohydrates are bad for you. Well, the fact of the matter is, we're going to look at these refined grains. What are refined grains? These are whole grains where the nutrients and the fiber have been stripped from these things. Let's look at the anatomy of a grain. A grain has three parts. When we say whole grain, we mean that all these three parts are still intact in the stuff we're eating. A refined grain is a grain that has most of the nutrients stripped from it, and all it has now is the endosperm. What we have here is a very nutritionally depleted food. And that's when carbohydrates get a bad name. Now, this is interesting for Adventists. You see this quinoa that we all love? So look at quinoa and the buckwheat, etc. These are pseudograins because botanically they are seeds, but functionally they are grains. So they're fabulous for us to eat for health. But if you look at this here, this is... Um, 80%, the refined grains, they lose 80% of the fiber and the nutrients. And by the way, I'm going to give you some, some teaching points. I want you to write them down as we go along. And when you leave here, you should have about 10 points that you're going to take home. This is the first one. What's interesting about this, I'll tell you a funny story too. This is brown bread. There is no difference between that brown bread right there and white bread. Does anybody know why I say that? Somebody raise your hand and give the answer. Yeah. Unbleached. Well, you know, I have some gifts. And here's one. This is good food right here. So right here is the label. It says unbleached enriched. What does this mean? By the way, one of the greatest marketing tricks on earth is this right here. Wheat bread. Multi-grain, seven grain. When you see that, you say to yourself, no, this is marvelous stuff. I'm going to buy that brown bread, seven grain brown bread. When in fact, this is unbleached enriched wheat flour. You're now adding back the stuff you took out. So I had a funny thing happen to me in the grocery store the other day. This very nice lady, she was in the canned bean section of the grocery store. And she said, I don't know who she thought I was. I was shopping. And she said, ma'am, can you help me buy some beans? I'm trying to figure out which ones I should buy. She said, I'm a diabetic. And they said I shouldn't eat salt. I said, are you sure? She said, yeah. So I began to explain to her about beans and whatnot. And, and then we had a good talk. Then I went to the next aisle. And now she's trying to buy bread. She said, ma'am. How do I know which bread to buy? Here's the first teaching point. The very first ingredient right there 
needs to be whole. If it says whole, buy it. If it says this, this is a marketing trick, don't fall for it. All right. So the first point is whole. The second thing is if you look at this list right here, whole versus refined carbohydrates. You look at this, what do you see? Candy and soda and pastries, all these wonderful things, right? This is what gives carbohydrates a bad name. This is all red box foods. This is all green box foods. How do you compare candy with lentils and fruit with Fruit Loops? It doesn't work, right? Don't even try to do it. But this is what we should be eating. We should be enriching our plates, prioritizing our plates with this side right here. These are very good for us. All right. Now, ultra-processed foods. These foods are scientifically engineered, highly palatable foods to keep us coming back, back for more. When you eat that donut, you want to come back for more. This is highly palatable food, scientifically engineered to keep us coming back for more. So this is ultra-processed food. Ultra-processed food is some of the worst food on earth. Okay, so this report, this advisory committee is made up by a group of nutrition scientists. These nutrition scientists meet every five years and they advise the U.S. Drug Administration what should Americans eat over this next five years. In 2015, this group of nutrition scientists, none of which to my knowledge were Seventh-day Adventists, met and said this. Americans should eat a diet higher in plant-based foods such as vegetables, fruits, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds, lower in calories, and animal-based foods is more health-promoting and is associated with less environmental impact than is the current U.S. diet. This group will be meeting in 2020 again and giving us further guidelines. A nutrition writer, Michael Pollan, said this, eat food. Not too much, mostly plants. And this is what he said. So if we look at this then, this is, these are health-promoting foods. A plant-based diet does not necessarily mean that all you're eating is plants. It means that you are deriving the majority of your calories, at least 80% from plant-based foods. Your plate then is prioritized with plant-based foods. All right. Let me quickly comment on the Mediterranean diet. By the way, I'm going to be going over some awesome material. And if I'm going too fast, make sure you let me know. And this here will be uh, the second teaching point. The Mediterranean diet. I want someone to tell me, what is it that makes the Mediterranean diet the Mediterranean diet? What foods? Olive oil. I heard olive oil. Who said grains? You said grains. Ma'am, you get a recipe. This recipe I made this last week, it's a bruschetta. And it is the, the, um, the basil bruschetta. It's a basil pesto. You put avocado. I put all the instructions in there for you. Very nice. All right. You're right, ma'am. So this is the deal. 
Everybody, first of all, the Mediterranean diet is not a homogeneous diet. The Mediterranean diet has, is, is really related to geography and time. It began in Crete in southern Italy and Greece. And what happened with the Mediterranean diet is this. They noticed that these people were, had very limited access to health care. Yet, they had low burden of chronic disease and they lived longer than they should have. And the reason was they ate a Mediterranean diet. That diet really, as they, as all these, these are two major studies right here. And as they deconstructed all these different studies related to the Mediterranean diet, it was not the fish or the olive oil or the wine that, con that uh, made the benefit. It was the whole grains, the plants, and the nuts that made all the difference. More plants, better outcomes. More meats, worse outcomes. And the fish, the olive oil, and the alcohol were not the primary benefit. It was the whole grains, particularly, and the nuts and the fruit that really were the, where the benefit came from. Quiz. I want everyone to participate. Which of the following is the number one source of calories among Americans aged two and up? The number one source. I want you, everybody's got to raise your hand, okay? So, let me ask, let me ask each one. Is it sugar-sweetened beverages? The number one source of calories. How, who says dessert? Bob said dessert. All right. <laughs> Bob, do you know something about that? Who said it's the breads and bagels and rolls? Bread, bagels and rolls. And who says cheese and cheat products? My brother-in-law is a genius. I always knew it. Bob, you're right. It is dessert. It's dessert. It's these grain-based dessert. Now, I have another fun uh, factoid here. So, by the way, let me just review one thing. So, the first point I wanted you to write in a piece of paper was whole. First thing you look at the, when you look for ingredients, whole. Second thing I want you to know is the Mediterranean diet is the whole grains. It's not the fish and the oil and olive oil and the, and the alcohol. Now, so the top sources of calories for Americans aged two and up, number one is grain-based desserts. That's the number one source of calories. What do you think the number two one is? What, say it again louder. Sugar-sweetened beverages? Okay, it's bread. Not, now, that's the bread I showed you. That's the bad bread I showed you. These white bread, rolls, mixed grain bread, flavored breads, and bagels. What's number three? Sugary drinks? Any other takers? I'm about to give you a factoid that you won't believe. It's chicken. Now, let me tell you the factoid. Americans eat one million chickens an hour. They eat 24 million 700 chickens every single day of the year forever. Can you imagine that? I said to myself, have you guys ever seen those trucks going down the street with the chickens in the back and the feathers are flying everywhere? Do you ever get the thought to yourself, I want to free those chickens? This thought comes to me. I got to go open those cages, you know. But they eat that many. One million chickens and an hour are being slaughtered and eaten by Americans. What is number four on the list? It's got to be the, the sugar-sweetened beverages. Now there is a fifth item. Does 
anybody know what the fifth item is? It's, enough, it's not cheese. It's the food group all by itself. What? Dairy? No. It's pizza. <laughs> it's pizza. So that's how we eat our calories. Do you notice something about this stuff? This is all um, red box foods. There is nothing healthy about anything on this list. The majority of Americans prioritize their calories with a suboptimal diet. There's something going on. And that's what they say. The global burden of disease, the United States, is killing people because of what we are not eating. All right. Now, look at this graphic here. Okay. 70% of our calories are from processed and un unprocessed food. If you look at what we eat, 58% is industrially produced stuff. This right here. Does that look like food to you? No. Let me show you something else. You see over here? It looks like it's 38%. That's pretty good. But when you look at 38%, there's meat, milk, and eggs. 14% grains, root vegetables, etc. Only 14% of our, our diet do we eat in the green box foods. And then this one up here is added sweeteners. Do you begin to believe that we are eating a diet that is killing us and is costing us a, a major amount of money? Okay, what we're going to do this, so now we know what Americans eat. What I want to do now is transition to um, these specific diseases, and we're going to talk first of all about cardiovascular disease and insulin resistance. There's some super cool things. As we go along, let me ask you a little quiz. How many of you here have heard that diabetics should not eat fruit? Fruit is bad for diabetics. Second question. How many of you believe that fruit is bad for diabetics? Don't believe it. Awesome. We're Seventh-day Adventists. We know a few things. All right. So first of all, let's look at cardiovascular disease. And what we're going to look at is what do these food, these color boxes here, what do they have to do with cardiovascular disease? Well, I have some bad news for every single person sitting here in the seats. Every single one of us sitting here in these seats has some plaque building up in our coronary arteries. Do you know that? I think it's probably the case. You might be able to see. My husband's a cardiologist. He said, he said no. But you know, I think we, we have not always eaten as we should. And for that reason, there's something building up there. Okay. This really is an interesting study. This was from the Korean War. After the Korean War, the average age of the soldiers that died was 22 years of age. And they did autopsies. And almost 80% of them had um, plaque atherosclerosis building up in their coronary arteries. And that's how we began to get this data. We're also familiar with the blue zones, right? The blue zones include Loma Linda, are a group of areas, geographic areas, that enjoy um, extraordinary longevity. And there is something that these areas have in common. And in common, they have this diet right here that that gives them this longevity. There's no question. And what happens is this. In these areas, they prioritize their plates in the green box foods. Only if it's like a holiday or something like that, do they have on the very side of the plate 
some little spot of meat. It's a very unusual thing for them to have uh, anything that's unhealthy. So we're going to uh, progress here and look at red meat, particularly in meat. And what is it about red meat that is literally lethal? And what we see here is this particular study um, shows that red meat is associated with a lot of heart attacks and chest pain and so forth and strokes and congestive heart failure. Conversely, however, if you have a plant-based diet, there's no question you have decreased in all this kind of heart problems. This gentleman here, Dr. Key, he was from, is from Oxford University in England. And he began to, th to think about Loma Linda Seventh-day Adventists. And he studied them. He said, you know what? Those people out there are living a long time. They don't smoke, they don't drink, but I believe it's something in the diet. So then he began to study um, 11,000 people in the United Kingdom. And he took 6,000 vegetarians, 5,000 non-vegetarians, and he realized that this, the vegetarians had very little cancer, very little heart disease, compared to the non-vegetarians that had a significant more increase in cancer and heart disease than the non-vegetarians did. That's really important. Um, and then every other study that has been looked, these others, there's significant decrease in death and cases of heart disease. The question is why? And here it gets to be super fun. So this is a great slide. You may want to take a picture of it. And what you may want to do is annotate it later. So the interesting thing, and here we're going to come up with our third point, And just listen very carefully. A little bit of science never hurt anybody. So this is a deal. Do you see this stuff right over here? This is a type of meat of some type. That's cheese. And this is eggs. Cheese, eggs, and meat. There's a reason the Lord told us what to eat. Well, if you look at these foods right here, these, this steak contains something called L-carnitine. L-carnitine. And cheese and eggs contain something called choline, phosphatidylcholine. What happens when somebody eats these things? They eat them. And the gut flora, this is really important um, factoid or take-home point number three. The gut flora, what's flora? It's the microorganisms. When you eat, your food interacts with your gut microorganisms. And when those gut microorganisms encounter these compounds that I just mentioned, choline and phosphatidylcholine and L-carnitine, they are trans formed into something called trimethylamine. It goes to the liver, becomes oxidized. You know we like the oxidants, right? This thing becomes oxidized into a poisonous substance called trimethylamine oxide. This causes a problem because it causes premature and accelerated hardening of the arteries. So when you eat this substance, your gut Whatever bacteria you have in there translates that into very poisonous, pro-inflammatory substances that accelerates the damage to the blood vessels, causing death, heart attack, and stroke.
and it's via all these different mechanisms. Now, what's interesting about this is, is this. The Cleveland Clinic was the first to publish this, this, this material. And what the Cleveland Clinic discovered is that when patients come to the, to the Cleveland Clinic with a heart attack, they can measure this substance right here and predict within 30 days if you can get another event or not. Well, what they said to themselves is, is this something unique to meat and fish and dairy? Let's get a bunch of vegans and feed them a steak and see if they get a heart attack. Okay. If you were vegan and they came to you and said, can you please eat a steak? We're trying to do a study. What would you do? And that's exactly what they said. We're not going to do that. So you know what they did instead? They got some L-carnitine pills and they gave those pills to the vegan vegetarians. And then they tried to measure this substance right here. Do you think it was elevated? Do you think it was decreased or zero? It was zero. And the reason it was zero is that the gut microbes that vegans or vegetarians have is totally different than people who eat meat and dairy. So that's really important. That third point then is the gut microbes are different in vegans than people who eat lots of dairy or meat. That alone right there is responsible to causing a lot of heart attacks and strokes. There is good reason to be a plant-based diet person. Okay. So I think that that's a really significant thing. And what you can see is this particular substance is very pro-inflammatory and it causes all kinds of problems that you really don't want to get involved with. All right. Um, now, I don't want to leave sugar alone. I have to get sugar. And this study here was done from a, a wide variety of institutions, including the NIH, um, Emory University, and Harvard University School of Public Health. They looked at sugar. Sugar actually accelerates hardening of the arteries. Now, I have a confession to make. I'm giving this talk. But guess what? I love sugar. And it's really sad. How many parents in here? Parents. Okay. How many, what, if, if you took all the candy out of the grocery store, what's the most difficult aisle to go into? The cereal aisle. Look at these boxes. Aren't they beautiful? And every kid's eyes light up. They want this and that and Fruit Loops and who knows what all they want. And this stuff, even cornflakes, has sugar in it. And people say, well, I can't go to the cereal aisle. I can't buy, buy cereal. What should I eat? Oatmeal. I hate oatmeal. But I had some good granola last night from some lady from Christina's Kitchen. Delicious. I think it's vegan. And I need to get her a recipe. But oatmeal, that's really what you eat. So sugar also causes some significant problems. And this just tells you, you can have a significant increase in heart attacks as a result of, and death as a result of just eating sugar alone. How much sugar should we eat? I'm not recommending this, but the American Heart Association says six teaspoons for women and nine teaspoons for men. And we're talking about all the sugar. You need to look at what it is you're eating and figure out how much sugar is in that. Now, Adventists. We are Adventists. 
We don't use sugar. We use agave. Right? My mom was funny growing up. My mom thought that sugar was bad. And, but she would use brown sugar. That's different. And honey, that's different. Well, see, the problem is it's no different. Where's agave? There's agave. It's no different. It's still sugar. If you put agave in the stuff, that's still sugar. Now, I'm not saying don't eat sugar or anything like that. What I am saying is be aware that the tricks that we play on ourselves, this stuff is all sugar. And so as you count it up, all the same stuff. Now, um, fruit and vegetables and the risk of cardiovascular disease. The question is, how many fruits and vegetables will it take to protect us from all these things? It turns out that two and a half servings is about the amount of servings we need to eat of fruit and vegetables a day. And we'll come to vegetables and why they're so helpful. But fruit and vegetables, about two and a half servings. That's a small banana, an apple, and some broccoli. That's two and a half. This is the minimum number. And with that minimum number, it decreases the risk. These are the numbers that decreases the risk. And the benefits continue up to 10 servings per day. In other words, the more fruit and vegetables you eat, the greater benefits you get out of eating those fruits and vegetables. If you look at the green box foods then, the green box foods that we eat, fruit and vegetables, nuts and whole grains, it turns out that whole grains probably have the greatest benefit of all the stuff you can eat, whole grains, oatmeal, um, quinoa, and all of that. Um, Now, let's talk a little bit about plant-based and what plant-based means. The Harvard School of Public Health, obviously it's Harvard. They're really bright, right? They figured out something. How many of you know that French fries are plant-based? How many of you know that mashed potatoes are plant-based? But the problem is, when you think about plant-based, you say to yourself, well, you know, I eat mashed potatoes. That's good. Okay, I eat a little bit of French fries. But there, is, there are healthy plant-based and unhealthy plant-based. The healthy ones are the whole grains. Has those three pieces intact. Um, Fruits, vegetables, nuts, the glooms. If you look at the unhealthy, then you have the refined grains. Fried, there's the French fries. Potato chips. You know, I gave this lecture for Grand Rounds one time. It was funny. People were pretty smart. They went to the doctor's lounge and said they had their last supper. Because they knew when they, after they got with my talk, they weren't going to be able to go to the doctor's lounge anymore. Because I would tell them everything they couldn't eat. But it's true. So look at this. Um, if, you, if you just say plant-based, and you try and say, what's the benefit of plant-based diet on health? This coronary heart disease. Overall, it looks like a tiny benefit, 8% better of, of uh, having no coronary heart disease. But if you take them apart from each other, the healthy plant-based, now you have a 25% reduction in coronary heart disease. Whereas if you eat the unhealthy one, you have a 32% increase. So unhealthy plant-based diet is possible. Just because we're vegetarian does not mean we're eating healthy food. We're eating very unhealthy food. And what we're trying to show you today is that there is healthy vegetarian and unhealthy vegetarian. And that's the most important thing. Now this is like really amazing. I'm going to give you, this is the fourth point, but there are several points under this I want you guys to grab. Why is it and what makes plant-based food good? What imparts the cardiovascular health to plant-based food? (coughs) So, first of all, 
it does replace disease-promoting foods. In other words, it fills you up with other stuff. But beyond that, of their own right, plant-based food reduces LDL oxidation, and which is very, very nice. It decreases the oxidation of LDL, and it improves the endothelial function. I'm going to talk about these two. reduces inflammation. It alters the gut microbiome. That is really important. So I want you to write some of these points down. How does a plant-based diet protect your heart? Now, I'm going to tell you a great story, and then I'm going to explain something else. It also lowers blood pressure because it's higher in potassium, lower in sodium. It also decreases your lipids. I want to focus, there, though, on these two things right here. I'm going to do this by telling you a story. So I'm the program director for the residency in internal medicine at Kettering. And uh, so we have the, the, the residents who are going into internal medicine. It's a three-year program. And um, I have 33 of them. And there are 11 who are going to things like radiology or dermatology, whatever. They need just one year of internal medicine before they go on to these things. Well, I'm in the right state because I had a transitional year resident going into radiology. Brilliant guy. Brilliant guy. He was from Kentucky, right here. University of Lexington is where he went to medical school. And I had a Seventh-day Adventist um, resident. He was a vegan. Well, my Seventh-day Adventist vegan resident kept trying to tell this guy from Kentucky, who was a homegrown Kentuckian, southern food. He kept trying to say, no something, you need to try vegan food. And the guy kept saying, I'm from Kentucky. I eat steak and potatoes. I'm not eating any of that stuff. So one day he... My, the one resident convinced the other guy to go vegan just one week. Tried for a week. Now, I told you already, this guy was brilliant. So he went vegan for a week. You know what he said? He was like, as if my, my mind opened up. I began to comprehend and understand. I had no idea that my mind was so, so muddy. He's, and I talked to him about it, and he said, yeah, I missed my meat, so he went back to the meat. And he said to me, Every time my mind gets foggy, I go back to the plant-based diet and get all good again. I go back to the meat. Why is this? And now, I was thinking to myself, how could this be? This couldn't be. I've never heard this before. Well, there is a good reason. Dairy, dairy, cheese. Cheesecake, by the way, is not food. I just have to tell you, it's not food. Um... At our place, we have graters in Ohio. Before I read the label, I, I think I ate some graters. But now I tell people, that's poison, don't touch it. It has like 37 grams of fat per serving. Well, it turns out that when you eat meat or dairy, high-fat food, it causes inflammatory storm in your blood vessels. This is how it works. So the, the, the blood vessel... The blood vessel, right, is lined by some cells. Those are endothelial cells. Those cells are very functional cells. They produce something called nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is good because it allows the blood vessel to, to dilate. And when the blood vessel dilates, you get a little bit more blood flow and you feel good. When you eat meat, however, it actually causes um, a severe oxidative reaction, nitric oxide does not work, the blood vessel can't do anything, and it stays clamped down. 
And so the inflammatory storm, and there's reason for that. Remember we talked about that TMAO in that other slide? There's another compound also in these meats and cheese and stuff, so forth, called NEU, N-E-U-5-G-C. That's a very pro-inflammatory compound. Those two compounds cause significant inflammation. So what happens with these two things? Between the TMAO and this other thing, it causes the blood vessel to actually vasoconstrict. So your brain's getting no blood. And for five hours, the blood vessel is going through this problem. What happens in five or six hours? It's time for the next meal. The next meal is the same kind of stuff. You eat the same food, and the same thing happens all over again. The blood vessel, basically, the, the blood vessels are stunned, and they can't do anything. That's the reason you can't think. The plant-based diet, on the other hand, supports the endothelium. It actually produces phytochemicals that, that enable production of nitric oxide. And that's the reason the plant-based diet is so good. So the plant-based diet, those plants actually improve the endothelial func func uh, function and reduce inflammation. Those two compounds from dairy and cheese and eggs and, and meat are dangerous to the blood vessels. They traumatize the blood vessels. And that's the reason that happens. So the plant-based diet is really important. Um, and as, as, you, as you go from a, a vegetarian diet to a vegan and you add the fiber nuts, you can see that the decrease in your LDL progresses significantly. It's a much greater improvement. So vegetarian is good, but vegan is way better. I'm not trying to tell anybody what to do. I'm just trying to give you the evidence why this stuff actually, actually works. All right. Now, so that's cardiovascular disease. I'm going to try and take some questions at the end, but I want to talk about insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. Is anybody here from Kentucky? You are? I saw three hands. Does anybody like blackberries? Who likes blackberries the most? You guys stand up for the blackberries. All right, you stood up. Everybody stood up here. Okay, who likes to cook? You raise your hand. This recipe is so good, it'll knock your socks off. Okay, very good. Okay, there's more coming. You, you'll get something. I'll give you something, okay? All right. I should have got more stuff. This next thing I'm going to talk about is something I get fired up about. And I have two recent examples of this that my residents had to peel me off the ceiling. I was so concerned. But about half of the U.S. population have diabetes or prediabetes. What's interesting is people say, you know, my mother had diabetes. My grandmother had diabetes. You know, I'm going to get it. One time I was in Sam's Club. I overheard a conversation between two ladies. They said the same stuff. You know, well, my so-and-so had diabetes, so I'm going to get it. And I almost remember saying, no, it's not true. And I don't even know these people. I didn't do it. But anyway. But so here is a banana. A banana represents fruit, okay? So let's look at this banana. You eat the banana. This is, this is us in this room that don't have type 2 diabetes. By the way, I'm not talking about type 1, 1 diabetes. So you eat a banana. What happens? The blood sugar goes up. At that point, insulin is released from your pancreas. And there is a receptor to which insulin binds that sets off a whole cascade of things inside the, the cell. 
allows the receptor to go up here and take the glucose into the cell. Insulin is like a key that unlocks the mechanism that takes glucose into the cell. Does everybody understand that? This is vital, okay? So we're talking about skeletal muscle and liver cells, okay? Now let's say I become diabetic. I eat a banana. My blood sugar goes up. And someone says the banana caused my problem. Is it the banana's fault? Or is the banana an innocent bystander? Well, I'll tell you something that happened to me this last week. I was so frustrated. I had two patients. Well, I, was, I had a lot of patients, but two of them I had came in. They come, one of them came for a different reason, but she was a diabetic, 40 years old, and she was, unfortunately, morbidly obese. She came for something completely different. But my resident kept saying out loud, Miss so-and-so is a 40-year-old, morbidly obese lady. Finally, I said to her, I took her aside and I said, so-and-so, if you were morbidly obese, and I came to your room and I said, so-and-so is a morbidly obese, would you want to hear it over and over? And she said, no. Interestingly, though, this patient said to me, Dr. Schwartz, I'm ready to, I'm ready to, to lose weight. I said, great. She said, I was told that I can't eat fruits. So I've been eating a lot of meat and cheese and eggs. I was going to faint. I couldn't believe it. That's what she told me she was eating. Okay, I'm going to tell you why her diet's a problem in a second. The second guy was 29 years old. He's about to lose his leg. My resident came to me and said, you know what? This guy is a non-compliant diabetic. He keeps eating fruit. I said, What? He said he keeps eating fruit. I said, the guy's not, not non-compliant because of fruit. That's not the problem. He was a very obese guy. So let, let's, let's unpack this a little bit. This is really amazing. So, and I want you guys, now I, I tell my patients, I'm telling you about this because I know you can grasp it, okay? I tell my patients this stuff right here. This is what I said to them. I said, listen, the problem is not the fruit. The problem is about all the stuff you ate. So this is the deal. There's, a, there's a, a phenomenon called lipo. That means fat. Fat toxicity. Where's it come from? It comes from eating meat. People get really obese. And then the cells of the liver and the, and, the, and the skeletal muscle get a lot of fat tissue inside those cells. There's some technical names. I won't bore you with the names. But because of the fat that's stored up in these cells... No longer can the insulin do its job and everything is not working within the cell. So now you eat the banana and the fat and the meat you ate before has caused fat to build up in the cell. And now the sugar stays out in the bloodstream. It is not the fruit's fault. In fact, fruit is very beneficial in every diabetic. There's an article that was just published and it was from a wide variety of institutions, including Duke University and Harvard University, the Mass General, some investigators there. There was a guy, uh, Aisha, Dr. DeFranzo, from the University of, San, uh, of Texas, San Antonio, famous diabetologist, a lot of, of collaborators on this article, and they recognized that diet for a diabetic is not a low-carbohydrate diet for crying out loud, but it is a high-carbohydrate, high-fiber, low-fat diet. We need to be prescribing bread, whole-grain bread, and fruit to our diabetic patients. Anyway, so I can get off on this and go crazy, but, but the problem is not the poor banana. 
The problem is this fat that builds up, builds up in the skeletal muscle. And that fat comes from what you ate in the first place. Okay. So it's from fat tissue, excess fats, and so forth. One thing I will say is there are some skinny diabetics, older patients, that have the same mechanism, and that's because something called the mitochondria, there's dysfunction. It's a completely different thing. That's not the majority of cases. So let me ask you a question. If you wanted to decrease your risk of diabetes, listen carefully. If you want to decrease your risk of diabetes, would you decrease your processed meat, red meat, or sugar-sweetened beverages? Who says processed meat? Okay. How many who says um, red meat? Who says sugar-sweetened beverages? Okay, now look at this slide. This is interesting. The greatest impact on diabetes is processed meat. That causes the highest risk of diabetes of anything. And then sugar-sweetened beverages. Meat is a problem in diabetics. It causes the fat to build up in the cells and the, the mechanisms don't work right. What does meat do? It does a whole host of things. And in fact, red meat and processed meat, if you look at this very carefully, all these things, don't learn all this stuff, but these are all mechanisms. Some of these things are plain old carcinogens. That's what they are. Meat is carcinogenic. If you broil something, you grill it, whatever you do to it, you change it into a cancer-producing organism. But the end result is type 2 diabetes. I want everyone to be aware that the issue here really has to do with the meat and processed meat causing insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. That's where the issue really is. Okay. Um, um, this study here, again, also looked at, you know, people want to go on a, on a, a high-protein, um, low-carbohydrate diet. But if you replace carbohydrate with protein, you will increase your risk of diabetes. You cannot prescribe for anybody or your friends or your family members. Maybe you should eat more protein. They don't need more protein. They need more complex, high-fiber carbohydrates. That's really important. Um, in the interest of time, just very quickly, these three studies here were done... These were on, on pregnant women. These were done from a large, very, very large study. And this one here was done looking at blood sugar control over time using a high-protein diet. The fact of the matter, it does not work. You have to use high-carbohydrate diet. Um, now, how about these sugar-sweetened beverages? What are they, how do they contribute? Sugar-sweetened beverages are bad. They're just not as bad as meat and so forth is. So they can cause fat to build up in the liver, empty calories, weight gain. They can also cause a lot of fat in the liver and the skeletal muscle, obesity, and eventually they'll end up with that problem, lipotoxicity and insulin resistance. So if you look at sugar, it can do a lot of the same kinds of things. Okay, so next question for the group, which type of foods is most protective against type 2 diabetes? You paid attention. Thank you, whole grains. Uh, and fish is not the fish. Mirito is not the fish. If you look at this then, it is the whole grain. The question is, and here's the next teaching point, what is the benefit in the whole grains? What is it about whole grains that is beneficial? It's interesting. Someone said fiber, and actually it is something called cereal fiber. You got it. All right. 
Now, cereal fiber is something fantastic. What does cereal fiber do? And that's the reason we talk about oatmeal so much. But this is, if you eat the bread, whole grain bread. So, so what is it about it? It improves this after you eat glucose response. It lowers the calorie density, increases satiety. These short chain fatty acids are very helpful with gut bacteria that are healthy gut bacteria. And these are some more technical things, but it improves insulin sensitivity. The problem with diabetics that have type 2 diabetes is that they have insulin resistance. And so these um, whole grains increase the sensitivity of the patients to, of people to insulin. So that's why that is important. So what we know about diabetics is the fruit is innocent. It's not guilty. Diabetics need to eat fruit. I already said that to get the benefit from fruit and vegetables, you have to have at least two and a half servings a day. A, bana- a small banana, an apple, and some, some broccoli. Ideally, you want to get more than that, but this is, that's a good starting point. Okay. Now, this study is one of my very favorite. Because this was done in China. And they, they looked at half a million, 500,000 Chinese some of which were already diabetic, type 2, some of which were not diabetic as yet. And what they were trying to figure out is, does eating lots of fruit prevent someone from developing diabetes? And if you already have type 2 diabetes, are the complications less? Do you lose limbs less? Do you get less heart attacks and strokes? Does the kidney problems, do you delay that? And it was a beautiful thing. But what they found in this study was, and this study was done over seven years, Long, long time. So if you, daily fruit consumption lowers the risk of diabetes, lowers your mortality, and so far as if you're already a diabetic, you get less eye problems, less kidney problems, less large vessel things like strokes and heart attacks. So fruit have significant benefit in diabetics. My husband always says it is malpractice not to tell patients about these things. Just to give them pills, it's malpractice. And, and then looking at the nurses' health study, some of us are familiar with that. There's a very long-standing study, the nurses' health study, done by the Harvard School of Public Health. And as they looked at this as well, in terms of the risk of type 2 diabetes, a plant-based dietary pattern, if it's healthy plant-based, decreases the risk of diabetes by 34%. If used unhealthy, those french fries and mashed potatoes, they increase the risk. Now, I'll tell you this. It's okay to eat mashed potatoes on Thanksgiving and Christmas, but just don't do it every day. It's okay if you're traveling once a year to have the French fries. Does that relieve people's minds or what? Yeah, it relieves your mind. Everybody's looking at me like, I, what can I eat? Well, yeah, those French fries, once a year is not going to kill you. It's not going to do anything bad to you. So um, now this one here, um, I, this, is, this is something, uh, this is my pet peeve. This is my pet peeve. At the hospital, I don't know what the problem is, but for some reason, the dietitians disagree with me. And that's when I become strong-willed. Because they want to prescribe for my patients these high-protein, low-carbohydrate diet. I look at the plate, and I'm trying to understand why you're eating eggs, and why you're eating that omelet. I don't get it. This study was the first of its kind. It was done in 2009. It was a randomized trial giving patients 
high plant-based diet versus the American Diabetes Association diet at that time, which was 2003 guidelines. So those were the traditional ADA kind of recommendations versus a plant-based diet. And what they found was that the patients that had the plant-based diet did better than the ones that were on the American Diabetes Association diet. Which tells me that if you know something, you've got to tell it. And I keep I rewriting orders all the time, prescribing a diet for my patients. And the dietitians always tell me, no, you've got to do this or that. I'm like, no, I don't have to do this or that. My patient needs this. You know, it's just really, really frustrating for me. But anyway, but overall, better lipid reduction, weight loss with a plant-based diet. These people need vegetables and fruit, whole grain bread. I tell my patients, do you like bread? You can go here have a slice of good whole grain bread. Read the label. Got to say whole in the first place. Okay. So whole grains um, and cereal. I forgot to mention the, the teaching point. Cereal fiber. That was a big deal. And then diabetes should eat lots of fruit. Okay. Now, I just want to spend a couple of seconds because time has run out. Oh, let me just mention this very uh, quickly. The American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists is now recommending that, pe that diabetics maintain an optimal weight. They restrict calories if their BMI is increased. Plant-based diet, high in polyunsaturated and monounsaturated fatty acids. That's what the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists is recommending. And so this is not off the wall so far as I'm concerned. Now, cancer prevention. I want to say this because this is really careful. Not every single cancer is caused by what we eat or associated with it. But there are some cancers that are associated with what we eat, particularly esophageal cancers, colorectal cancers, even now breast cancer and prostate cancer. There are other cancers, however, that are not related. Some Seventh-day Adventists like to say, some, someone got cancer because they ate wrong. That's not true. We do know that some cancers, though, are associated with that. Now, this is great. By the way, in the 2000s, um, the World Health Organization declared red meat a public health crisis. But look at this. is funny. Three um, publications, hot dogs, bacon, and other processed meats cause cancer, the World Health Organization declares. Ham, sausage cause cancer. Red meat probably does too, World Health Organization group says. Processed meat causes cancer. At that point, the Time magazine published a, the front cover, The War on Delicious. Isn't that great? The War on Delicious. That's what came out in the Time magazine at that point. So we do know some things. And this is what I'm saying is really important. How does the American Cancer Society and all the research institutes in cancer decide what a carcinogen is. Carcinogens are determined based on the amount of evidence. So, tobacco is a group one carcinogen. Now, we know that processed meats have also been given this designation as a group one carcinogen. What does that mean? No, first of all, let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that this is the same as smoking. What it does mean is that the evidence, the weight of the evidence is as strong that this is a group one carcinogen as it is for smoking. Okay, now, come over here. All this stuff right here, it probably causes cancer. So that's really something significant, I think. 
And so far as processed meat, colorectal cancer is probably high on the list. You know, you, you really see very few Seventh-day Adventists who follow a good lifestyle that tend to have these kinds of things. Look at that thing. Can you believe it? And what does it do? The mechanism? All these, this stuff, these are carcinogens. Heme iron is poisonous. The advanced glycation end products, all these things are, are poisonous. Remember I told you about the new 5GC? This is a pro-inflammatory model, a molecule. It will kill people. And that's the reason you can't eat meat. That's the reason these things are so important. Okay. Fruit and vegetables, that's the way to go. And if you look at 14% reduction, seven and a half servings a day. What I, what I advise people to do, the steepest part of the curve is to get to two and a half servings a day. After that, then you can begin to add to what the people are eating. Now, I want to leave five minute, minutes for questions. Again, whole, whole grains, um, really important. Um, this is, oh, this is by one of our own here. Um, Serena Tonstadt. So if you know Sigvi Tonstad, this is his wife. She's an incredible researcher in this area. She studied as she was looking at, at foods that would be antioxidant foods. She studied 3,500 foods for this publication right here. And let me just read to you the list that she selected that have the highest antioxidant capacity. And those foods are black, blackberries. Strawberries, raspberries, pomegranates, dark grapes, Brussels sprouts, Brian's favorite, broccoli, red cabbage, kale. Kale is really, by the way, remember that inflammatory storm in the blood vessels? Kale is one of the best things. Recommend that you eat kale a couple times a day. Tomatoes, uh, dark chocolate. Does anybody here like dark chocolate? You do? All right. I was horrified. My husband said, Lindy, I don't think this is the right stuff, but you got it. That's organic. It's very nice. Dark chocolate. Has to be 70%. They use dark chocolate, pecans, walnuts, sunflower seeds is what they used in this study. And what they looked at was the expression of genes and the ability to repair the injury that's been caused by these, these tumors. And that was found to be something uh, very significant. Um, I'm going to stop there in the interest of time and um, see if there are any questions. Oh, yikes. What is the best oil for cooking, especially the frying pan? Um, well, first of all, I would try to avoid frying. I would saute. And if you saute, olive oil does work. I use olive oil a lot. Um, and there's some wonderful olive oils that you can use. Um, Canola oil is fine. If you have to fry it a little bit more, canola oil is fine. You know, it's funny. Coconut oil is such a savory, wonderful, delicious taste, but it really is probably not the healthiest thing, thing to use. So I would say saute stuff, and olive oil is great. Okay, so another, yes. Okay, so the question is that um, fat, she has said that she understands the insulin resistance issue, but some people have said that fats are not involved. And I would say to that, the evidence is not on that side. The evidence is on the side that fat is involved. The data I showed you was from Dr. Schulman from Yale. He did it. Dr. DeFranzo from the University of, of um, Texas San Antonio. He's a diabetologist. I think they know something about that. Now, insulin is a problem because this is the deal. If somebody wants to say, I want to eat my steak and eat my, take my insulin, insulin does build fat. So you want to try to, to 
to get back from all that food, lose weight, and, um, and do it. But there's no question that lipotoxicity is a very real entity. It is the mechanism for insulin resistance and the reason that, that fruit are not tolerated in diabetics. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Another question. I'm glad you asked that question. So she wants to know. My twitch sister's beaming because she's always telling me about this. Okay. So, so she's, she's talking about processed meat in the, in the veggie meat, the processed veggie meat. Are those bad? Now, let me tell you something interesting. When they looked at protein, high-protein diets, they did some comparisons between plant-based high-protein and animal-based high-protein. There is no data that suggests that plant-based protein is dangerous. Now, I don't like what they do with that veggie meat. They press it down, put salt in it. Salt is bad. So I think that salt is a problem. And anything that changes form, I don't know, there may be a problem, but there's no evidence that plant-based protein does the same damage that animal-based protein does. So, yeah. Yes, in the back. Okay, so she's asking about celiac disease and what do you do for bread. You know, I really feel for people who have celiac disease because bread is so delicious. To be very honest, I don't have all the answers. I have no idea what you do about bread. I have looked at the celiac, the kind of bread celiac disease people can eat. I look at it and I say, but that's not bread. So I don't know. It's true, right? Um, so I don't know. Now, what I will say is this. There is almost, if someone has celiac disease, which is not that common, they really have celiac disease, then you have to avoid gluten products, etc. There's a fad about being gluten-free, and there's really basically no such thing. People are kind of making that one up. But there is celiac disease, and that is difficult. And I, I, to tell you the truth, I have not seen a bread, quotes, bread product that to me would be palatable. That is right? Yeah. So other questions? Yes, go ahead. Okay, so she's asking about the role of dairy products in cancer. Okay, remember I show you that one slide with the, um, with the cheese and the eggs? And in cheese and eggs is that phosphatidylcholine that ends up becoming this horrific molecule, trimethylamine and oxide. That is a poison to the body. So I would say that dairy products, when you eat a high-fat meal, like, you know, Fettuccine Alfredo. I'll tell you another funny story. Fettuccine Alfredo. That's a lot of dairy stuff. That'll kill you today. I was in the doctor's lounge the other day. They served macaroni and cheese. By the way, I have never even tasted macaroni and cheese. It never looked like food. But I was in the doctor's lounge. Don't know what came over me. But they were serving macaroni and cheese. And there was a guy in front of me, another doctor, just heaping it on his plate. And I don't know what came over. I said to him, sir. That stuff's going to kill you in one heartbeat. There's no question in my mind that dairy is going to kill you in a heartbeat. One heartbeat. So it is just as bad as the meat. And the data has shown, when, when I discussed that endothelial um, dysfunction and inflammatory storm in the blood vessels, that related to animal products, dairy products, and meat. Both. They both do it. And so, now, I don't want to seem like I'm some, you know, zealot. I might be, but not 100%. So I try to let people kind of grow and, and develop and change gradually. Because if you change dramatically, you're probably not going to stick with it. 
So I let people kind of grow into it and, and try to do, you know, see what can come. Yes. Soy. Okay. I'm glad you mentioned that. I had the one slide about soy. Um, and I knew that question was going to come up about soy. Is soy good, bad, men, whatever, so forth. I love soy. Um, and, and I use it at home a lot. Tofu is the most awesome substance. You can make tofu taste like anything you want to taste like. And I think it was a gift of God. And the fact of the matter is, as you increase soy and fiber in your diet, your chance of heart disease does decrease. And so I think soy is a good thing to eat, personally. Okay. Does it have to be organic or non-GMO or whatever? Um, you know, there's something has happened to our, our, our um, farming system. And um, I'm not sure what's happened to it, but there are additives and problems and so forth. I think as we try to avoid, this is all I'm going to say about that. If we, as we try to avoid poisons that are meant to help the fruit grow better, we'll probably do better. So if you can avoid that. Now, I will say this. Every time you buy organic, you can spend twice the price. And that can take a hit on the budget. I'd rather tell my patients, I'd rather eat a plant-based diet, buy what you can afford, than tell them it's got to be non-GMO and organic. I'd rather have them head in the right direction than put roadblocks that they can't progress forward. So that's what I would say. Thank you so much, everybody. God bless. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.